All right, we have my good friend and uh, one of my one of my mentors. He probably doesn't know it, but Tom Gerling uh, was an incredible, incredible uh, individual and human. You know, we we're here to get into uh, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Tom Gerling. So thanks for having, thanks for being here this morning. Wow, thank you very much, Sergio. I'm really uh, really happy to be here and, and really good to see you again. <laughs> you know, from uh, being locked down and that for all this time. So it's really nice to see you and really happy to be here for sure. Thank you, man. So from, uh, we'll just get into it. Uh, from what I know of you, and I don't want to speak for you, but I'll just ask the question. Every time we're together, you sort of have this hyper sense of the environment around. You have this kind of perceptive mind and and heightened senses um and i can relate to that as a filmmaker because i have to be clocking everything that's going on uh you know when when we're shooting so um how's that developed like where take us back in in the way back machine and and let's go back a little bit and it seems like you were you were built for this yeah um and i'm not sure it's a good thing like uh yeah, I I call it hypervigilance uh, just because it's cooler, but most people call it paranoia. <laughs> so I <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, so just a little bit background. Uh, you know, my dad uh, my dad was a police officer, and uh, you know he was uh, born in the '30s, and you know he joined the job in the '50s, and you know it was a different world, and um, families and you know parents uh, was different than it is today and and uh, as a result of that you know he was pretty strict and uh, so I grew up kind of under that uh, heavy hand and I think when I think about it that, that hypervigilance really started back then you know I was wanted to make sure that my dad was happy because if he wasn't it wasn't a, you know wasn't a good place to be so I was always really trying to anticipate uh, you know, if if he needed a hammer or something, and if we were we we were together and he was doing some work, and he needed a hammer. I would try to anticipate that, and because if he asked for the hammer, and I couldn't find it, you know, th that was a real problem. So uh, I think when I think about it really and analyze that, uh, that's that's really where sort of that hypervigilance started for me, uh, just in anticipation, preparing, you know, being making sure that I knew where the hammer was as an example, just in case he asked for it. Uh, and so as I grew older and, and then, you know, I eventually joined the police as well. Um, I think that really served me just being able to anticipate things, uh, assess my surroundings, be firstly being aware of my surroundings. And that's something that I, you know, I really stress to people. Uh, when I talk about personal and workplace safety is being aware of your surroundings, not being surprised is, is the key, I think, because it, it you know, it, you may not be able to uh, stop something from happening, but you shouldn't be surprised about it. Like if it's coming towards you, a threat or whatever. So I, I used that when I joined the, the job and, and um, I think, you know, unintentionally and you know, sort of subconsciously had that. And, and that really helps that, really keeps you safe and it helps keep you know the public safe as well if you can anticipate a problem or maybe have a view of your surroundings and, and know what's out there and know what could potentially be a problem why do you think your your dad became an officer 
Oh, uh, you know, that's a great question. And I never did ask him that, you know, he's, he's passed away now 15 years or so, but, uh, you know, I, ne- I never did ask him, I think back in the fifties, I know for like, he didn't graduate high school. Uh, and back then you could do that. Um, you could join the police department and, you know, it's a, it's a clean job, you know, other than the traffic crashes and the, you know, the things that you see, but you're not, you're not working in a factory, you're outside, um, you know, all those sort of basic types of, uh, types of things. And, um, I think that, uh, you know, he probably looked at his options at that time in his life and, and the opportunity was there for him to join, and uh, he took it. But that's a great question because I never did ask him that. I should have. Yeah. Where Where did you grow up? Tell us about how you grew up and and growing up in a, in a household having a father as a cop. Generally. So he he was a dominant figure in my life. Obviously, you know, my father, but but also he was pretty dominant in his you know personality, and so. Uh, I just really saw him as someone that I wanted to please, mm. you know, this sort of no, normal story of a father son, I think. And I never really felt I did. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, as, as I grew old, so he never at the height of your, at the height of your career, he never said, wow, you've reached such heights in the police services. I'm proud of you. Well, I don't think it was in their DNA to, to express it that way. I think that's general of our generation. And I've come to terms with all of that. Uh, you know, that's just the way he was brought up. And, you know, he didn't have the tools, I guess. But uh, I was looking for that, obviously, as a kid. It's just normal. And, you know, so as I grew older, um, I just kept looking and searching for ways to make him proud of me and uh, make him happy and, you know, keep him from getting upset. And so, you know, as time went on and you know, I had numerous jobs, as, um, worked on my uncle's farm for years every summer when I was going to school, you know, and that was a great learning experience for me, just about work ethic and uh, how, you know, you can only control so much because farmers, you know, were at the, at the whim of the, of the weather, really. So um, that was a great experience. And, you know, I would spend my summers on the farm, which meant, you know, I didn't have to... Uh, you know, be in the company of my dad during that time to, to be on guard all the time. So, uh, so it was, that was, uh, you know, good for me. Um, but I think as I, as I got to that point where, um, you know, 20 years old or so, you know, I had taken, had gone to university, uh, and really took up agricultural business because I really enjoyed that, that sort of work. But, you know, realizing that I wasn't ever going to have my own farm, per se, it wasn't being left to me in the family or anything. And you know, farms were even back then expensive. So I looked for something else that where I could dedicate my life to, you know, kind of as a career. I'm not sure that people think that way now, but I certainly did was, OK, what am I going to do for a career here? And uh, which means, you know, spending 30 years at something. And I just looked at him and I thought. I don't think I really said this to myself, but looking back on it, I think it was I was influenced by the thought that, well, one of the ways I can please him is do what he did. Mm. So that's what I did. I joined and I uh, got on and uh, continued to, you know, on that just on that topic, you have continued to try to please him even after his death. So, you know, which is 
I, and I've come to terms to it, with it, but, uh, you know, I still try to do that, I think, subconsciously all the time. And that's not a bad thing because it keeps you on your toes and it, it keeps you where you got to be, like, on. And uh, that's, in turn, you get the benefit of all of that work ethic, you know, trying to be your best, always, always trying to do the very best you can for whatever reason, if it's, you know, trying to please someone else. But that is, is a true, true benefit to, to yourself. And, you know, I don't regret any of that really. That's the way it was. And I think uh, it could have been worse. You know, I could have gone the other way and just revolted and, you know, maybe went the, the 180 degrees the other way. So that is true. And it sounds cliche, but I mean, if, if we had the parents that we had dreamt about ha wanting to have, we wouldn't be who we are today. It's like, it's that learning, growing, experiencing. I don't like to use the word failure or negative because those are labels. And then you probably look back and think what seemed like a failure 20, 30 years ago was actually probably some of your greatest lessons and gifts, right? So we learn so much from our mistakes versus things that go well. You know, I've often said that. And, and one other really interesting thing that's come out of that and, you know, after lots of self-reflection and work uh, is that I now approach people knowing that they have probably gone through things like I did. Right. So that informs me on how they're reacting to things today. I remember once I was uh, in the office and one of the officers I was working with was asked to do something. And as soon as he was asked to do whatever it was, he just immediately said, why do I have to do that? Uh, why don't you get so-and-so to do it? Like, how come I'm doing that all the time? And I, and I was looking at him and kind of smiling to myself saying, boy, there's, there's the 10 year old boy. that's just been asked <laughs> right. to take his, take the garbage out by his mother. And he's saying, he's saying exactly what he said then. Now, why do I have to do that? Why don't you get my your my sister to do it? She never gets has has to take out the guard. He was saying the exact same thing. So you know, I'm really it really informed me as to why people do things and why they react the way they do. Hmm. Goes right back to how they reacted when they were five, six, seven, eight, ten years old. Well, you're you're a master at that at, at interpreting body language, communication, uh, all that. And one of the things I admire about you is that there's a certain, especially now, I mean, the last couple of years that we've gone through, there's a certain image of what policing is and who police officers are. And first of all, I want to thank you for your years of service because I know what you went through and a lot of it you experienced by yourself and you're a man of integrity and, and you never crossed that line. But you also have a spiritual side, which I admire. And there's a there's a philosopher in there who's wanting to learn and grow and share and you lead with your heart. And that's not typically what we think when we think, you know, men and women in blue. Right. So. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. And where did that start? Like your 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 journey of personal growth, because. I remember you telling stories of sitting in a cabin up north by yourself with long hair, leather jacket, you're undercover, you know, you're, you're chasing the bad guys. Talk to us about mindset and where that comes from. You know, um, I think I, I've read lots of Dr. Wayne Dyer's uh, just, you know, I get my information from, you know, those other experts out there in the world for sure. 
uh, and that helps helps me to inform myself. And you know, the majority of my life has just been stumbling and being lucky, I guess, on the other end of it, and you know, making those decisions at the time, not even knowing why. There's a great line in uh, in a movie, uh, Running Scared, with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, where the boss says they're going to retire, and the boss says, "All right, I want you to teach these." two rookies everything you know uh, before you retire. And and I think Billy Crystal says, how can we teach them everything we know when we don't even know what we know? I, I, I never forgot that line. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how that worked. So when you were sent out in the field and you're in a life and death situation, and if you're, if you're open to it, please share some of those life and death stories when you were undercover. Did you have the, 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 mental spiritual support or were you just trial by fire like out there just figuring it out well you know we we have we're, we're really careful okay so um you know the movies really don't portray that side of it too much because it's kind of can be a little bit boring i think but we do lots of research there's lots of intelligence information provided officers Maybe not so much when I was doing it, because it's a few years ago, but now, for sure, officers are, are covered. You know, we have that term, covered, uh, being covered. Um, so you're not really at a 100% risk. However, there is there is a danger and risk involved. It's, it all depends on who you're dealing with. So I won't take that away at, at all. But we are very cautious and we're very careful, and we have, you know, as I say, cover officers available. Uh so I just wanted to set that up beforehand. But on the other side, then you are, if you're doing working undercover, um, which, which I did for, you know, about 15 years of my career, uh, uh, about nine years dedicated full time. And then the last few where I was doing a lot of training and then one off sort of jobs. Uh, at first, you know, you're, you're sort of taken in by uh, senior officers, the same as, as you would be if you were a traffic collision, uh, investigator or a homicide investigator, you know, you learn from others. So right. I, I just soaked that up. I wanted to be the very best. And so I would try to just soak up everything that other people were doing and then make it my own because that's the key at the end of the day. It has to be your own in everything. Workplace mediation that I do now, um, there's a script, but that's just a guy. It, it, it's all about yourself and, and, and taking on, you know, your own characteristics and being, being comfortable in it. So the same with the undercover work. So I, I just used things that I'd done in the past, you know, I worked on the farm. So I had that experience. I'm a musician, you know, I play guitar. So I used that. And just in trying to develop my persona, I integrated the truth with the little bit of lie that, you know, the reason why I was in a particular location or, or you know, the reason why I was looking to buy drugs or stolen property or weapons or whatever. So that, that was the lie. But the, the other things were all the truth. And I think that's, you know, it can be very isolating because, you know, you're, you're thinking, you're in your head all the time thinking about anticipating. And of course, this is where that anticipating thing comes in, but anticipating, if I say this, what are they going to do? If I do this, what's going to happen? So I was planning always the next step. And what does this look like? So my the particular type of work that I did was I would move right into the town, wherever it was in the province, and uh, I'd take up residence. 
And so I just thought. And would you build would you build that character like an actor? Like, would you do character work where like, uh, my name is now, you know, Bob and I'm a guitar player. And like, did you have a whole Backstory. narrative that you would rehearse? Backstory. It's the same as in acting. I remember uh, I, I saw uh, an interview with uh, Michael Caine and he was playing uh, Alfred in the Batman movie. And this never came out in the movie. But in his interview, he said, yeah, I I was a member of the SAS. Uh, you know, the, the top commando unit in the British Army. And, uh, but that never came out in the movie, but that was his backstory. I never forgot that. Like, so I developed my own backstory, as I said, integrated with the truth and then the little bit of the lie. Wow. And when I, you know, I was lucky enough to be in your movie, The Cuban, and I was playing the burly orderly <laughs> and I had a whole backstory I developed. I didn't even have a line, Sergio, as you know. But I had a whole backstory of how did I get this job? What, you know, what qualifications did I have to become a burly orderly? Well, burly, okay. So I got that covered off, but the orderly piece. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to be. And the reason why is so you are believable. And so in the movies, when I watch a great movie like The Cuban, Thank and you. I'm watching Lou Gossett <laughs> Jr. and Anna, uh, you know, why is this is why is this good? It's because I believe them. And I'm not a music or a, a, a film expert. I'm just saying that as, as a movie goer, I believe them. You know, I, I believe, you know, Pitt and Pacino and De Niro. I believe them. So that's what I was doing in my undercover work. I wanted you to believe who I was. Did you believe it though? Did you have a moral conflict where you're like, I'm pretending for a living? Some people are okay with that, but sometimes it causes yeah. psychological, you know, challenges later but on. What's the goal? The goal is to protect the public. So I'm willing to take, I'm willing to take on this persona and to, um, infiltrate and make prosecutional purchases of contraband, whatever it is, so that I can protect the public from that stuff hitting the street and potentially killing a kid or, you know, in the worst case scenario or making an addict. Uh, that was the goal and the reason why. So I was able to, you know, justify it in my mind. No problem. Now, I will say, I will say that on a Reiki table, years and years later, I really had a, you know, I'm sorry I tricked all those people. You know, I, I just, it, I had this thing come out. And it lasted for a few seconds. You know, I had a bit of a breakdown on it. And, uh, but then, you know, the realization of the reason why I was doing it. And that was the, that was the, that made everything okay. So intentional living is something that has come up a lot in the last, you know, 18 months being intentional. Now that this pandemic has shook us to our core, it's like what I'm hearing from you is, is when you're connected to your intention and being mindful of that in all your actions um you know you're you feel more integrated and you feel like what you're doing matters that's so true sergio like it's that's a great way of putting it the intention what is the intent of my life and i i have to say that a couple of years after my retirement and i spent 37 years in the police um which you know I joined when I was 21, so longer than I've been, I was alive. I was a police officer. 
for the first part of my life. And after I left, I didn't know what my, my intention was. Like I, I had lost my, my reason for being and I had to get some help. Uh, you know, and I reached out to my doctor and thank God there was help out there for me. And thank God that I didn't hold it in and, and, and live with it and, and drink myself to death or whatever as, you know, as so many people and police officers do. And, you know, if I can say anything, it's just ask for help. It's okay. Actually, that's a sign of strength versus the other. So, you know, I got some help and uh, thank God, uh, you know, I, not sure if I'd be here. Wow. So because I'd lost that, I've got it back now with uh, the work that I do with uh, mediation. So I'm, you know, I'm, work, I'm working in still in within the law enforcement doing media, conflict mediation and workplace harassment investigations. So I've, I feel like I've got that sort of intention and that goal and, um, and that real uh, vision of how I see I, I can still contribute and serve. Did that intention change over the years? Like when you look back, do you feel like you've fulfilled and made that impact that you originally, that, that fire in you that, you know, is there a way, is it quantifiable? How, how do you find fulfillment when you look back? It, this comes from within. You can't find it outside. Because if you ask me now, if all the prosecutional, you know, drug pro purchases I made or all the work that I did in, in drug enforcement has made an impact, I don't think so. You know, like take a look at the situation with the, with, um, you know, the, the amount of opiate uh, deaths out there right now. And, and, uh, you know, the issues we have with the opiate addiction and, uh, and all the work I did, did, did that have an impact? I, I can't go there because, you know, you can't quantify it. I can only know what I feel inside that at least I wasn't contributing to it. I was trying to do something help. And, and I learned, I learned on that, you know, you've probably heard this term that the police can't arrest their way out of those problems. And that's so true. We need assistance from healthcare and, and education and housing and all those social things that, that contribute to the reasons why people become addicts and, and, and criminalizing an addict, making a, arresting someone who's an addict isn't helping at all either. No. So, um, but if you can if you can justify it in your own mind that you have done something that you have tried to at least to contribute that's all we have really because if if i start to try to look for that on the outside well what was my impact so as as drug use dropped no well then i had no impact you know you can go down a rabbit hole there so it's true i just think that people people that are looking for uh some sort of um outside justification for their existence have to stop that and look inside and then make changes that way so that they can they can then feel okay inside they can look at themselves in the mirror do i feel like i'm contributing they forget everybody else what they're saying or doing what how do i feel about my life then oh, that's okay and and the one the one last thing i i, I told this I've, I've mentioned this to many um of the recruits that come in to, that are training to become undercover operators is cherish this time because you are making memories. And when you get to be my age, that's all you have <laughs> is those memories of that time. So take chances, 
you mentioned about crossing the line. Don't cross that line. Know where it is. I jokingly say I stuck my big gut out over top of it, but I never crossed it because you know, none of that is worth it. Crossing the line, you're committing criminal offenses or whatever it is, is not worth it in the end. Go right up to the line. It, it's The line is there for a reason, to protect you. And then build up those memories so that you have them as you get older and you're, when you're not doing that anymore. Like I recall all the great times, like I miss them. I miss all that work. I miss all that camaraderie and the, uh, and the enjoyment and the satisfaction that you, you got from doing a good job. I miss that all the time, but I have it still. It's still inside me. Yeah. I know what I did. Absolutely. I feel, I feel good about all that. So, uh, yeah, looking for outside is always like fraught with problems. If you can, if you can, uh, it's philosophical, but, uh, you know, if you can find it inside, you know, I think you're, you're going to be okay. We certainly learned that in entertainment. Now there's all this push for validation from the outside, whether it's Instagram, winning the Oscar, hitting a $10 million, then it's 20 million, then it's 50 million, you know. And there's a pattern that I'm noticing and, you know, I've been blessed to meet some of my heroes and, and you just, you realize that it's never enough when it's an exterior thing. You know, you, you're so right about that. It, this is an inner game. It's yeah. once you've got that Oscar, then what? And, and some people, when they either win the lottery or they win that Oscar become miserable afterwards because there's a bit of a letdown there and, and disappointment because it's What's not. What's Jim Carrey say? Uh, he was he was a presenter at a award show and he said, "Hi, I'm two-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey, and every night I go to sleep at night uh, dreaming of becoming three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey." <laughs> like <laughs> he just said exactly what you said there, and uh, you know you will never be satisfied. Uh, you know, in my acting, my own, you know, small acting, like community theater and going to auditions, uh, just the opportunity to go to an audition for me was amazing. I would go around thanking everyone, the casting director. Oh, thank you so much for letting me come and audition. It was really good. So exciting. Really appreciate it. As opposed to, oh my God, I hope I get the part. And what if I don't? Which I've heard you know, actors feel, and I can totally get that. The rejection, rejection. piece, like yeah. it, it can yeah. be devastating to you. So I just took it at the time going, what? I'm auditioning for something. This is great. What actors often don't know is that sometimes the director already knows who they want. Sometimes it's, you're too short, you're too tall. Uh, like there's all these kind of trite criteria that uh, has really nothing to do with you as a person and that's you have to protect the artist the heart inside and that's I think a challenge for a lot of actors you know it's dealing with that rejection yeah and uh, and you know I was so lucky I, I got a couple of small parts I was in Rookie Blue and uh, Saving Hope and then of course your fabulous movie The Cuban so you know just looking back on those and those were all great memories now, too, just like all my undercover stuff. So that's what we're building up in our lives, things that we can remember fondly that we did and we took a chance at. We also have the, the amazing ability to relive those memories with our imagination. You know, you can always tap back into that energy. And I wanted to ask you, you were talking about the, the laying on the Reiki table and reflecting back. What have you learned about humanity 
because we struggle with this in in storytelling. It's there's the good guy and the bad guy. There's the the strong woman and the weak woman. The, there's all these labels. Um, when you're when you're up against, you know, the, we'll call him the bad guy. You're looking in his eyes. What do you see? Um, well, that's a great question, really. Um, because we're nuanced. It's complex, right? Just he is, yeah. Maybe he is committing crimes, but he's also a human, and you're connecting on that also on a heart level. So, how do you deal with that? So that and that's the that's the rub, because if if I get that person to sell me whatever because they believe me or they want the money and I have it, you know, whatever reason, uh, then they've committed that offense. And I've, I've been a part of uh, facilitating, you know, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have done it because that, that would be entrapment, but, you know, we, we have lots of intelligence information to, pr- to say that they are currently doing this anyway. So I get, I get inter, uh, injected into uh, that person's life and then, they do what they have already done, selling whatever it is, contraband, and I'm just the next customer. Uh, but I'm the one that's now going to be, you know, helping with the prosecution of them for that particular event. So that's what I'm concentrating on. And that's what I'm seeing is, are they believing me enough to commit that offense in my presence? Because I'm the police. And I'm now going to go back and write up this and prepare the information, have the information prepared on that offense of whatever it is, trafficking in firearms or drugs or whatever. Um, this other side of that, when I say that that's the rub, is that I have tricked that person into, into believing because they would never have sold that to me if they knew my, who I truly was. Interesting. So I was instrumental in making them believe I wasn't who I was to enough to commit an offense that could possibly put them in jail. So I was able to do that. And that's where I had that, oh, that's heavy, man. Like that is to, to convince someone that you are someone who you aren't enough that they will do something that could eventually put them in jail. That's heavy. That's a weight. That you have. So you have to, you have to rationalize that some way. And the way I did it was, yeah, but if it wasn't me, you know, that, that product, the gun, the drugs, whatever it is, would be out on the street now and causing problems for the community. So I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to use all my tools, whatever I have to convince this person that I'm okay to sell that product to that could put you in jail so that's a heavy thing that is heavy and we are human we are innately you know uh, wired to connect right so it's were there situations where you connected to somebody where you're like if it what if this scenario wasn't what it is whether it's female or male or whatever uh you know i'd be friends with them i would date them or what like you've i'm sure you've had those heart connections hundred percent. Absolutely. And that's because just as you said, that's that human side, you know, we're being human with each other. I'm convincing you of something and, uh, you know, you're telling me of something else. And I'm, you know, I, we're having that parlay back and forth. Like, wow, man, that's a really cool gold watch you have. Like, like how, 
how much is that worth? Oh, it's, you know, 17,000. Wow. Some of these, one of these days I'm going to have one just like that. You know, I'm trying to ingratiate myself with the person. I never want to watch that like that, but you know, those are the things that you would say, those types of things that you would say to try to, you know, be human with it and develop that rapport and develop that relationship with them. Nobody's going to, you know, pick you off the street to, to commit that criminal offense with. They, they want to have a, you know, an understanding and feel good about themselves as well that they haven't done that, that they haven't sold to a, a police officer or an undercover officer. So, uh, you know, we have to develop that relationship and that's that human piece. So you can't separate it. It's I'm trying to develop a relationship with you, Sergio, because I want you to sell me some stuff, but we will always now have that relationship that we had separate and apart from, you know, the criminal side of it, the, the, uh, educational side. Wow. Now we've, we've, we've got that connection humanly. And I've developed that with hundreds of people. And that's why I cried on the Reiki table. Wow. <laughs> that's exactly why, <laughs> you know, you, you, you help, you help me identify why I cried Gosh. on the Reiki table. And that's why it's because of the human part of it. Right. Were there some, uh, you know, we'll call them, bad criminals that you found fascinating, interesting, and that if they weren't, if they didn't direct their energies towards breaking the law, they would have actually been amazing people in the world? Well, they, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging them as being amazing or not, but uh, <laughs> right. I've, I have said, if only they would dedicate the energy that they put into their criminal enterprise into this cancer research or developing the next electric whatever like wow they would be so successful because of their ingenuity their fearlessness they're willing to take risks and chances like just just shift that a little bit over into this direction please because we could all use that as as a human race you know obviously hundreds of times i've said that about about these individuals of how dedicated and smart they are in their criminal out in their criminality and oh geez you know it's just too bad that they couldn't turn it this way and what's the reason for that you know that's when we get into that social economic conversation about homelessness and and opportunities and, and all that other stuff so i don't know like it's far beyond me to rationalize that but really there's been lots lots of those examples for sure. I think the lesson is really how much choice sends us on a path and, and how much control often we have in making those choices. Exactly right. And as I indicated before, I could have gone off the other way growing up under the, you know, under the oppression of my father at the time was I decided to take this path. I chose this path. I don't know why. No idea. I don't know why I did that and not go the other way. So, you know, those things, those things are all informed. Uh, I, I worked with uh, the executive director of the Council on Drug Abuse years ago, and he said, you know, Tom, kids at five years old don't sit around and say, you know, by the time I'm 18, I'm going to become a heroin addict. You know, they don't do that. Like, it, That's it's so true, man. It's life, so what, true. what life has presented you and the, what choices you make with that coming at you 
is what informs how you're going to end up. And so who am I to judge all that stuff? All I, all I was doing at the time was taking the information that I had, the, um, the product was illegal. It was being sold to me. I would document that back at the, back at our, you know, office safe house or whatever. And then put that to a judge in court and they would decide if I made the case and, you know, whatever punishment was happening. That, that wasn't on me. I was just doing my job as a police officer and all officers know this is that you just do the very best you can and then you present that to the courts. You turn it over and let them decide. And, you know, sometimes we get into this conversation about, oh, I wish they had it got 10 years instead of five. Like that's got nothing to do with us unless we did a lousy job, of course. But we do our job. We give that away. And I learned that in police college. That's what they taught us on day one is you have a job to do and this is what it is. And when you complete that, you give it off to someone else, the crown. That's up to them. And then that releases you, released me of that. Right. I want to paint the picture because I've seen some of the photos. So here's Tom Gurling, long hair, scary dude, mirrored sunglasses. <laughs> I think you had a cigarette, oh, yeah, smoking, sure. drinking beer. Yeah. You're sitting in a in some shitty motel up north or a cabin, you know, with a rotary phone next to you. You're by yourself. You're in a you're in a high stakes situation, whether you believed it or not, and, and life and death. What got you through those dark moments where you're laying in bed going, like were there moments where you're like, What am I doing here? Or was it adrenaline or was your intention so strong that you, you didn't have those thoughts? No, no, I had those thoughts for sure. Yeah. I was lonely and isolated. And, you know, I've sacrificed. Um, I don't have children because all during that time when, you know, my fellow officers were out there uh, getting married and having kids, you know, I was in that cabin, isolated, you know, waiting for the, for the drug dealer to call me. So uh, I sacrificed that and that was my choice. Now, I kind of regret it now. I'd love to have a kid that, you know, would be able to take care of me as I get older. But uh, you know, I, I made that choice at the time because I, I didn't want anything to distract me from being the very best I could be. And I felt that having that relationship, um, having that life, that other life would be a distraction to this life. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't regret it, but there was lots of isolated times. And, you know, I turned to the guitar. Um, you know, I was going to ask you how, how music played a, played a role. Totally. I think it saved my life. Wow. You know, and many times and for a number of reasons, but two specifically psychologically, it helped me because I could get out all those feelings in my sad songs, you know, playing, writing songs and just playing Bruce Springsteen or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also it, it was, I recall, a one incident particularly when, uh, I was in a um, in a town, and uh, I, I went into a building, and there was a number of uh, potential <laughs> customers of mine there, or the drug dealers, etc. And they were looking at me like, "Who are you? And what are you doing here?" And I felt like really out of place for a second. And I, until I saw a guitar, I said, "Hey, does anybody mind if I play this?" Two hours later, you know, I made my made my purchases and I said, okay, boys got to go. And, uh, they said, no, one more, one more, you know? <laughs> so maybe that saved my life as well. I, I don't know. Um, do you remember what song, uh, the, what songs you played? Well, it was, you know, lots of 
I, I did. I think it was. Um, well, I do lots CCR. of lots of Springsteen. Yeah, CCR, a couple of little Pink Floyd. You know, wish you were here, that sort of thing. So <laughs> stuff that they would know uh, back in the day. You know, classic rock on the guitar, uh, on the acoustic guitar. So um, yeah, it saved my life more than once. Wow, uh, but more psychologically than uh, physically, I think. It's a real testament to the power of music and, and, you know, that's, it's such a theme that I just love so much. It's like, you know, it's not only it's, it saved us during this pandemic, just music. You know, I've, I have music from the moment I wake up to the, you know, the minute I, I close my eyes and go to sleep. It's so life enriching. Yeah. It really adds so much if we didn't have it. Uh, and, and just on, on your comment there about, you know, my long hair and beard and it was you know, bushy beard and the long hair. I did all that just to, and I used to say that the uh, the deal is the tenth rung on a ladder. If I could come in at rung five, you know, ride the Harley, the leather jacket, and not even open my mouth, I'm already at rung five before I've said a word. So anything I could do to get me up another peg on that ladder before I had to actually, you know, give my backstory and tell them why I was there, I would try to do. Which then, in turn, made it exceedingly difficult on the personal side to have that relationship because who, even back then, who would want to be hanging out with someone that looked like you know ZZ Top? So, <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that. How how did you manage you know just being single? Like you obviously have you're human, right? You have needs. You you feel lonely. You meet somebody in a bar, like. So your job literally came first, which is, I mean, that's, you don't hear that often, man. No, hundred percent. And I, and I did have relationships. Uh, they, you know, they lasted, you know, up to maybe two years at a time, but, uh, I would, I would tell them right off the bat, never ask me to choose, please never ask me to choose. My motto was wherever, whatever, whenever. And it was like, I'm going to wow. go. I would do 10 days on the road in one project, get home, phone rings. Uh, Tom, can you come down to Hamilton or whatever and do this? Yep, no problem, on my way. Uh, sorry, honey. <laughs> Cause I, so you were never off. There was no time off. I had time off, uh, you know, in my own sort of way. Uh, but I was always available. I wanted to be available all the time. You only have a certain window. I, I figured I only had a window of time where I could do that. I was eventually going to be promoted, I hoped, and you know, do other types of stuff in the police world. So I only had that small window. Ended up being like 15 years, but uh, I didn't know how long it was going to be. And uh, I wanted to take advantage of it and not have any distractions. Firstly, because it would keep me from doing another job, but otherwise... Otherwise, maybe subconsciously, I thought, I don't want any distraction. I don't want to have to think about calling someone when I'm in the middle of a deal. Like I'm late to phone, you know, my my partner or whatever. So I didn't want any of that distraction. And that and that was a sacrifice. It's a huge sacrifice. And thanks for making it. Uh, it's, it's a part of what you do that people might not appreciate or understand. We, we sort of, it's like airline pilots. It's just, you know, you get on a plane, but you don't think about that individual who has to sacrifice so many things to be the best that they can be to serve the greater good in the community. When did you, at what point did, were you ready to shed the layers of all these characters that you had played and just be the real Tom Gerling and make yourself emotionally available to be in a committed relationship? Well, I do remember uh, 
I do remember this specifically. I was in my office soon and, um, I just finished a job. I think it was my ninth project, ninth long-term project in a row. And I just finished one and I was, you know, thinking about my next one. And one of the bosses, uh, in the drug enforcement you know, section came to me and said, Tom, do you want to, um, we, we have an opportunity to go and, uh, to get you into doing some training, training, uh, new undercover officers. And I went, oh, geez, I don't know. Like, how can I teach him when I, what I know when I don't even know what I know? You know, that line from that movie. Yeah. Uh, so good. And, and I said, oh, I don't know. Like, I want to do another job. I'm ready. Just finish that one. I'm ready to do another one. And he said this, I'll never forget. He says, but why don't you train 30 officers to do 30 jobs instead of you doing one? That was all it took. Wow. That was all it took was the rationalization of, okay, if I can then help get 30 jobs done the way I've done, I've been doing it, then that's, then that's my next goal. And then that gave me the freedom to, you know, get into a relationship. But it took me years then after that. Like, I certainly didn't get married the next day. <laughs> like, it was years and years after. I was in my mid-40s when I finally took that, uh, took that jump. So, yeah, so that was my transition into training, which, you know, I loved. I loved doing that. I, I would, you know, speaking to you as a director... I actually brought the recruits, the, the undercover recruits to a community theater. I gave them, I gave them sides. I asked them, I gave them a week to learn their sides and brought them to a community theater where they acted out their parts. And then I had a director give them notes like on how good their performances were. Absolutely. On how believable they were. Wow. That's yeah. so cool, man. That's amazing. And w what I found about the, uh, about the training part was I could then shift, you know, my undercover world, I, I was always thinking about how can I make myself more believable? Uh, what does it take to become believable? And how can I use that to giving that information to these 30 new recruits saying, these are the ideas that you can have. And, and, and I would c come up with ways of how can I test your believability? Wow. One of, the, one of the things that we would do is we would ask them to come up with their per, their backstory before they they showed up on the first day of training, and as soon as they showed up, you know, I'd ask them, okay, so uh, what's your name? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Uh, oh, you say you're from uh, Toronto. What's the number one rock station on the AM or FM radio in Toronto? Now, what's the, what's the newspaper the the local newspaper called? And if they hesitated. If they hesitated on any of those, they had to go back and redo their backstory. Wow. Because, you know, I was going to, I was thinking about doing this exercise with you, Sergio. Where'd you go to high school? St. Martin's. See how fast you answered that? Yeah. So here's the difference. Oh, and, and where, and where's St. Martin's? Mississauga. Okay. So I totally buy that. So ask me the same question. Where'd you go to high school, Tom? Uh, where'd I go to high school? Um, <laughs> Repeat the question to buy time. That's hilarious. You're not ready. You're not ready because those are mundane questions. You don't, you know, I'm not asking you to answer, what are you doing here? And why do you want to buy, What's the meaning why of do you life? want to buy a pound of cocaine <laughs> off me? I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you a mundane question that's going to solidify you in my mind that you are for real.
and that you are who you say you are. So you cannot hesitate on those things. And that's why I say you interweave the truth with the lie and you prepare. You know, that movie, The Reservoir Dogs, I think where uh, Tim Roth, mm-hmm. I may have the the actor wrong, but the undercover cop in that movie is going through that backstory with his partner on the rooftop about being in the washroom at the airport with the the drugs and having the three uh, sheriff's deputies and the and the drug dog come into the washroom. Like that was all fake, but he was trying to sell it to his uh, his partner. So, you know, that that was all part of that persona and that acting and that making myself believable. And then I was able to take that and help the rookies uh, or the baby narcs, as we would call them. Uh, help them learn those techniques as well to sell themselves and become believable. And some just couldn't do it. And I'm not saying that they were worse officers or not. They're fantastic police officers, but it takes a specific type of person to be able to pull that off and to be confident. And it's like not everyone can be an actor. That's right. You know, they could, you know, you could work in the film business, but you just, some people are sort of maybe born with that ability to be believable in that character. So that's what I was trying to, because the stakes are pretty high, you know, out there in, in that world Yeah. to misalign on the, you know, can stage is one thing you misalign in the, some biker clubhouse and that's a different thing. It's life and death. It, there's so many yeah. parallels too between you know film and Lots. and undercover work. Yeah. It's it's incredible, and it, I think you know that's why I could never be an undercover cop or an actor. I think there's a line that I would always cross in terms of um, when you go too far and believing your own story, and then you well, can't come yeah. back. We we seen that in the movie Donnie Brasco. I don't know how much of it was fictionalized or how much artistic license they took, but that. What are the tools now in, in modern day undercover work where there is that line that a person can't cross? Are there people around that could recognize when they've gone too far? How do you pull yourself out of those characters and come back to Tom Gurley? We've learned from tragedies, you know, police suicides and uh, alcoholism and drug abuse and all those tragedies that happen because officers, you know, they they fell off. They, they didn't... Uh, they either didn't take care of themselves or they weren't taken care of. Uh, it's a lot better now because we really recognize the, tra- the trauma of these types of uh, jobs have on, you know, on humans and on their psyche and mental health. So there's lots of psychological help. You know, there's a baseline, I think, done on all these officers beforehand. And then you're, you're checked uh, periodically afterwards to see if you varied from that know your opinions of things oh interesting you know people would say you know i've I've done so much undercover work i must not think that drugs are that bad anymore it's the exact opposite because i've actually seen in you know in some of these uh places locations and houses that i've been in where there's lots of rampant drug abuse it's horrible their lives are horrible and they're only trying to live for the next hit and to do whatever they can to get the next hit so if I can do anything to try and stop that, I'm going to. You know that that was my goal at the time, and try to help. Uh, so I don't think that it's you know the, the drug abuse or the, the trafficking is. Uh, I'm not sympathizing or empath- I'm empathizing with them. I'm not sympathizing with them though because uh, 
they need help to make better choices, some different choices in their lives. That is so true. So you, you pointed to, to the guitar and it's, it's tempting for me to say, how, how comfortable do you feel as we, as we wind down this, uh, this interview uh, about pulling out the guitar and maybe, you know, taking us down memory lane. No, no. (laughs) Okay. Here it is, folks. Yeah, we're doing this for real. You put me on the spot here, but uh, I think I'm tuned. Well, I was on the road to nowhere with no end in sight. Storm clouds in the distance Couldn't turn left or right Motorcycle headlight Don't show me the way I need more illumination To start a brand new day While I was on the road to nowhere With no end in sight Storm clouds in the distance Don't know what's wrong or right got me disadvantaged. I don't know this way. But I've had this premonition to start a brand new day. Something like that anyways. <laughs> Amazing. Woo! <laughs> brand new day, folks. It'll be out That's in your local man. record stores next Tuesday. Man, you took me back to that cabin. I could see it now and, and how, how that guitar, you know, literally saved your life. But not, not in more ways than one. Probably more uh, spiritually than, than in any other way. So it's amazing. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for, uh, for being transparent, for honest, being honest and, and sharing your incredible story. Because people need to hear it. Thank you so much, Sergio. I just My last comment was I've always tried to be Tom first. And then, and then the, you know, the police officer, whatever I, whatever rank I had, because I am Tom now. And, you know, like I'm not a police officer anymore. So if, if, if I have any advice for any officers or anybody out there that's in, in a high stress job is you are who you are, number one, and then you are what you do afterwards. That's incredible. It's a great message to share. One last question, uh, for, you know, there's an emerging artist out there that is looking for guidance and advice, you know, career path, whatever. What advice do you have for this young person in terms of uh, choosing, but also the um, the commitment and dedication to your passion, something that you know very well? Well, that that's a great point, is do what you're passionate about. You might have to take a sideline job or a side gig that you don't like for whatever reason, but all the problems you know that that people have you know related to their work are is because they don't like what they're doing and you know in this world of the great i think what they're calling the great resignation there's all kinds of opportunities out there right now you know for whatever reason but the the real advice the only advice i can give from my perspective is just to do something that you love to do and then it doesn't feel like work it feels like you know, you're just you're just living and you're you're doing something that you're loving to do, which helps with your life and it helps you build those fantastic memories that you're going to have when you're not doing that anymore. As opposed to, well, I'm just doing this until I get to do what I want to do. Don't wait. Work on doing what you really are passionate about and what you would love to do to make a difference in, 
and then you're you're all set. You've already got it started. Thank you so much for that uh, for that wisdom coming from you know Tom, who's you know reached the the heights of success in 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 intelligence, policing, acting, guitar playing, uh, you know, lover, Pilates expert. I mean, you know, this is uh, you're hearing it here first. Thank you, folks, and uh, thank you, Tom, for for sharing. It really means a lot. Take care.